144 countries have ratified the Paris Climate Agreement, and 143 of them say they'll stay in it even if Donald Trump pulls the United States out. But staying in and delivering what you stayed in to do are two different things, as Martin Chungong made clear on Tuesday at mid-year climate talks in Bonn, Germany. The Paris Agreement uh, was signed a little under two years ago, and so uh, people are... uh, have high expectations to the extent that they think that not much is being done. I found that too. Inside the climate echo chamber, you see a lot is being done. But outside of it, you don't. That matters to Chungong because he's secretary general of something called the Interparliamentary Union, which helps senators, parliamentarians, and legislators from around the world learn from each other's mistakes and develop policies that fit together like a global jigsaw puzzle. The IPU has been around for almost 130 years, and we'll come back to them later in the show. But first, let's address the issue he raised. Countries won't officially take stock of their progress under the Paris Agreement until 2023, when they sit down and see who did what and how everyone can do more. Because only by doing more can we prevent temperatures from rising more than 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. At this point, however, we don't even know exactly what activities countries will be taking stock of. That's one of the things negotiators are negotiating this week and next here in Bonn. So until negotiators get the official stock-taking sorted, what are the barometers of progress under the Paris Climate Agreement? The almost daily announcements of governments on areas such as renewable energy investments or building resilience or uh, energy efficiency. That's Patricia Espinoza, who heads the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, listing some of the traditional indicators. The number of cities, regions, territories and companies and investors taking action, setting targets aiming for 100 clean energy in operations, shifting investment flows. But there's another barometer, laws. Are countries passing laws that help them implement their climate strategies? And if so, are the laws they're passing any good? Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth, we broke it, we own it, and nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields, and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature itself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we dive into a new database that tracks climate-related legislation around the world. I'm on a website called Climate Change Laws of the World, which is housed on the London School of Economics site, and it tracks all known climate-related laws, including executive orders, policies, and also laws passed by legislatures. I've clicked through to their country's page, 
They've got a big globe here, and countries are in various shades of blue. The darker the blue, the more laws they have. The United States is kind of in the middle, and I hover over it, and now I see at the bottom that the U.S. has 14 total laws. That's including acts of legislation, uh, policies, and executive orders. I click on the country, and now I get a pop-up that tells me all kinds of things. Total emissions, the U.S. is number two on that front. Uh, It has a link to the country's climate action plan. And then it says that those 14 laws are actually eight laws and six policies. So I I close that, and then I move to the United Kingdom. They have 23 total, which I see is 16 laws and seven policies. And then there's 49 pieces of ongoing, li- of ongoing litigation. Climate change laws of the world tracks both legislation and litigation for every country on the planet except one, the United States, the most litigious country on Earth. But fear not, Columbia Law School's Sabin Center has a site dedicated just to U.S. litigation, and the Laws of the World site links to that. In fact, Laws of the World is a joint venture, between the London School of Economics' Grantham Research Institute and Sabin. You can find links to both sites in the show notes at bionic-planet.com. Just look for episode 13. Now, Sam Fankhäuser oversaw the creation of this thing, and his team spent the last few months combing through the database, looking for patterns, and they found some. If you look at the database, you see that uh, the Paris pledges, the NDCs, uh, they were actually not... They didn't come out of nothing. They weren't made in a vacuum. They're based on a lot of lawmaking at the domestic level. NDC stands for Nationally Determined Contributions, basically each country's climate action plan. The whole point of the Paris Agreement is that each country can develop its own way to fix the climate mess, as long as they do so in ways that can be compared to each other. It makes sense that if a country is serious, its laws will somehow be related to its NDCs. Uh, if you look at those 164 countries, we find well over 1,200 climate change laws. That's a term we use very broadly. It's acts of parliament, but also executive orders and, and policies of, a, of a, a similar status. If you add all those things up, you have over 1,200 laws and similar policies around the world. That's a huge amount of legislation. That's about seven and a half laws, six to seven to eight laws per country in every country in the world. But even if those laws help every country keep its pledge, temperatures will still rise about three degrees Celsius, which is well into the danger zone. Remember, the models start going haywire after two degrees, and the Paris Agreement aims to limit the rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So Fankhäuser's team looked at the G20 countries, the richest countries and the ones with the most emissions, to see how many of them had laws that, if enforced, would at least get them to their Paris Agreement targets. And it turned out that only a third of them did, seven out of 20, had the domestic legislative basis that was consistent with their NDCs. So the other two-thirds had work to do. So, going back to Chungong's point from the start, What have they done since Paris? We have observed since uh, Paris 47 new climate change acts in the broad way that we define them. 14 of them are acts of parliament, 33 are policies or executive orders. 
That's, that's a real, that's a lot, 47 pieces of legislation. Yet it isn't quite as much as we used to have on and around Copenhagen, which was the peak of legislation. There was around 100 laws or so that were passed every year. We're now down to uh, just under 50, so less lawmaking. But yet it's still true that countries are filling their, uh, their gaps. Within the G20, we can point, for example, to China, which in its 13th five-year plan has incorporated its uh, NDC um, provisions and ambitions, so the, the legal basis in China is consistent with its NDC. Argentina, Canada, both countries that we singled out in Marrakesh as not being compliant yet have taken steps. Um, they're probably not fully there yet, but they're taking steps uh, to become NDC compliant. The UK, which was NDC compliant already in Marrakesh, partly because the UK is, or still is, uh, part of the EU framework when it, when it comes to uh, the, uh, its commitments under the Paris Agreement. But the UK has passed its fifth carbon budget, which sets its target to 2030. So a lot of the G20 countries are slowly taking steps to uh, fill their gaps, the gap between their NDCs, their Paris pledges, and their national legislative realities. But more to, more to go. But what about beyond the G20? How about all of those developing countries where emissions have been rising faster than in the developed countries? Or countries like Kenya, which has low emissions and lots of clean energy but could get whacked as temperatures rise? If you look at the database, you see that climate change lawmaking truly is a global effort. There are countries of every economic, social, cultural description that you can think of that are passing climate change laws. Uh, let me just highlight two groups. Uh, one is we, we have over the last uh, 18 months since Paris seen some of the oil-rich countries passing. Uh, there are more policies than laws, but that are compatible uh, or acknowledge at least um, the need for clean energy uh, Saudi Arabia has a, has a vision 2030 that talks about clean energy. Um, Kazakhstan, also oil-rich, has a law towards the transition to a green economy. The Emirates uh, have, have provisions as well. So we see in that group of countries, in a sense, which are the ones that sit on the fossil fuels, that they, we start seeing an acknowledgement that something has to happen. But the other group I want to highlight is, is uh, developing countries, at least developed countries. We really should celebrate the fact or the, the, the enthusiasm with which uh, low-income countries have started to pass climate change legislation. They don't emit the hell of a lot of carbon. They're very vulnerable uh, and therefore a lot of their laws are about, or policies are about uh, adaptation to climate change. They have a lot of work to do to integrate those climate provisions into their mainstream development plan in their development strategies. Only 40% of the, of the countries we looked at actually do that. But again, we see a lot of exciting, good, thoughtful action in countries like Malawi, uh, Mali. Benin has a new climate change resilience strategy, which is less than 18 months old. Um, Gambia has a climate change policy. Kenya passed the Climate Change Act. Pakistan passed uh, provisions on energy efficiency. 
Colombia has a climate change degree. The list goes on. There are, even among the poorer countries, leaders and laggards. Uh, important also to focus on the gaps in legislation. The uh, study that we are launching today shows that there are about uh, half a dozen countries where there is no climate change related legislation. The Equatorial Guinea of this world, Comoros, Sudan, Somalia. We need to focus on these ones because uh, you don't want weak, uh, weak links in the chain. Uh, as uh, former Secretary General Ban Ki-moon used to say, climate change has no boundaries, no national passport. So if there is a weak link in the Equatorial Guinea, it might impact upon Cameroon, it could impact on Gabon. So it's important that we look at this also mm. to make sure that we bridge these gaps that are existent. But like anything, laws are only as good as the enforcement. And some laws are poorly structured. Obviously, the, the number of laws is, is, a, is a really good indicator. It's not the only indicator. Uh, within the laws, you want to look of the quality of the law, which is, you know, an art rather than a science. But you look at, at things like uh, whether the laws have targets, explicit targets, short-term targets to 2020, 2030, long-term targets to 2050 and beyond. Um, you, you check whether those targets are comprehensive. Is it just the power sector or does it cover all the sectors of the economy? Um, you wonder about, and that's the really hard bit, about the policies that are, that are in place. Um, you know, are there many exemptions? Uh, are there obvious policy areas that are not being covered? You ask about the institutional design. Are there independent institutions that scrutinize whether the government is doing uh, what it should do, uh, is civil society involved and give scrutiny. So those are all elements that you can look at. And a word to those of you who live in democracies. Get active. It works. You know, obviously different countries have different political cultures, but uh, most countries, or the democratic countries, uh, they have a culture where laws are being passed uh, that involves the process of public engagement. Uh, where NGOs and stakeholders have an opportunity to uh, feed back to legislators what they think a particular law should be. Um, legislators tend to like to be re-elected, so they, uh, they probably listen to, uh, to what their voters think. And we've done some analysis on the political economy. They do, legislators do pay attention to their, uh, to their voters. One thing, for example that you observe is there's a cycle that climate change laws tend to get passed immediately after elections rather than immediately before. Um, so you, you sort of see the interplay between legislation and, and, and stakeholders. And I would say good laws, laws that are credible, that are enduring, that don't get reversed at the next opportunities are laws where civil society has had an input. That about wraps up this edition of Bionic Planet. You can find links to the platforms we looked at here in the show notes for episode 13 at bionic-planet.com. If you're looking to buy a book or something from Amazon, you can support us as well by clicking through one of our ads at bionic-planet.com and making a purchase. Also, let us know how we're doing. Do you like the shorter, simpler format? Is there something we can improve? Something we should cover but haven't? If so, you can reach me at steve at bionic-planet.com. That's steve at bionic-planet.com. And if you record a comment and send me the MP3, I may read it on the air. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. 